Morning, church. Morning. I like that, Bill. Bill gave me a hearty good morning. It's good to be back with you. I missed you last week. It was good to be with family uh, down south, but it is good to be back and uh, to dive into God's word together. Before we do, I want to draw your attention to one note in our worship guide this morning. Um, on August 20th, I know several of you have asked um, just about, is there going to be a testimony time from our recent trip to Laos? And the answer is yes. Um, on August 20th, we're going to be um, hosting just a testimony night, and we're going to be sharing from the trip. Jens and Sean and myself will be sharing from the trip. So just want to make sure that you get that on your calendar. would love for you to join us and to be a part of that. Rumor is there might be some egg rolls involved with that, so I don't know if that entices you to come. Um, but it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a fun time um, just for us to give a report from the trip and talk, talk about what God is up to in Laos and um, what he might be up to with us um, and the country of Laos, and specifically the church in Laos. So uh, I wanna invite you to join me for that. Can I pause and pray for us as we dive into God's word together this morning? God, as we come now to your word, we pray uh, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. And God, uh, specifically this message, that Lord, you would stir us up to be a people who are faithful witnesses of your name in Wichita and in the world. God, help us to live into our identity as your ambassadors. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. After his resurrection and before Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, he commissioned his disciples to go and to make more disciples of all nations. A little later, we read in the book of Acts that Jesus told his disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus very explicitly and clearly commissioned his disciples to make more disciples, to live as his witnesses in the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, the apostle Paul says to the believers in Corinth, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. And so we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says that God makes his appeal to the world through his people, through you and me. And one of my deepest hopes for our church is that we would more fully live into our identity as ambassadors for Christ. That as followers and disciples of Jesus, we would recognize that every one of us is called to live as a witness of who Jesus is and to what he has done. I long for God to raise up from within our body missionary women and missionary men with, with a burden to go to places where the name of Jesus is not known, to make him known. And I long for every single one of us who confesses Jesus as Lord to embrace the calling on their life, to live as a proclaimer of the excellencies of Christ here in Wichita. Some of us are uniquely called to go to the unreached, 
But all of us are called to live as sent ones, commissioned as ambassadors for Christ in everyday life. That's what our workshop is going to be about this Saturday. Shameless plug. And so to be clear, some, some Christians have an apostolic calling on their life to go as a missionary. But every Christian has an ambassadorial calling on their life to represent Jesus right where they are. Francis Chan reminds us that a disciple is, by definition, a disciple maker. He says, that's the whole point of being a disciple of Jesus. We imitate him, we carry on his ministry, and we become like him in the process. Earlier in the letter of 1 Peter, Peter tells these believers that he's writing to, remember they're scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he reminds them of who they are. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a people for God's possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter reminds these believers, he reminds us this morning that we have been chosen by God to belong to him and to represent him in the world. This isn't an identity for a select few. This is a reality for every believer in Jesus. We're all priests and proclaimers of Jesus. Priests who mediate God's presence and demonstrate his goodness to the world. And proclaimers who declare his glory. In his goodness. Last week, Pastor Brett led us into a new section in the letter of 1 Peter. In, in the previous section we, we had looked at for several weeks, Peter kind of zoomed in on these particular groups within the church to give them instruction on how they were to live in, in their particular relationships. But, but in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter zooms back out to once again begin addressing the entire group. So in ver- chapter 3, verse 8, he says, finally, all of you, He's talking to the whole group. And and what he says in in verses 8 through 12, what what Brett led us through last week is that he deals with how Christians should engage and act toward one another. How they should be forgiving toward one another and like-minded and sympathetic toward one another. But in our passage this morning, Peter shifts from how Christians should act toward one another to, to now how Christians should act toward outsiders, toward the world. But don't miss it, he's still talking to the whole group. He's talking to every single believer. This passage is is for every Christian. And essentially what Peter says to every single one of us, if we're a Christ follower, is that as disciples of Jesus, we are called to live in a way that provokes gospel questions and provides gospel answers in a posture that adorns the gospel with beauty. I'm going to say that again. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to live in a way that provokes gospel questions and provides gospel answers in a posture that adorns the gospel with beauty. Peter's going to emphasize in these verses three marks of a faithful witness of Jesus. We're going to see a devotion, an answer, and a posture. So let's look at these one at a time. The first thing that Peter mentions here is a devotion to God's kingdom. And and specifically what he emphasizes are are two markers of faithful kingdom devotion. Peter first says that believers who are effective witnesses are devoted to righteousness. 
Let's look back at verse 12 to kind of pick up some context of, of what Peter's saying. He says in verse 12, he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. In verse 12, Peter is quoting Psalm 34 to remind believers that God is against those who do what is evil, but that his eyes are on the righteous. That God is with those who are in relationship with him. And then in verse 13, Peter makes an if-then connection. He says, if God is with those who are committed to righteousness, then who will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? This is a similar argument to what the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 8 when he asks, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And obviously that's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is, no one can be against us. Nothing can stand against us if God is for us, right? Well, Peter's making a, 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 same, a similar argument here when he says, who then will harm you if you're devoted to, to what is good? He's, the answer is no one. Peter's speaking in an ultimate sense here, or to, to use a fancy term, in an eschatological sense here. He's, he's looking forward into the final day, and he's saying nothing can ultimately harm those who belong to God. God will be faithful to you. And so here's the argument. Even if you should suffer in the short run, you have nothing to fear because God is with you and God is for you. So even if you should suffer for righteousness, verse 14, you're blessed. And so Peter's exhorting these believers to remain devoted to righteousness. And he uses this word blessed intentionally. He's echoing Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who devote themselves to God's righteousness know that theirs is the kingdom, that they belong to God, that they will inherit the kingdom. They're blessed even if they suffer in the here and now. God is on their side. He sees you. He will vindicate you. This is a, a forward-looking trust in God's promise to finally right all wrongs and to vindicate those who live for him. And so this begs the question, what, is, what does that actually mean to live for him? What does it mean to be devoted to righteousness? I think Jesus helps us here in the context of the Beatitudes because he, equate, he equates being devoted to righteousness to being devoted to him. In Matthew 5, he says this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And in the very next verse, he says, you're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Peter's making the same sort of argument here. You may suffer persecution. You may be maligned by those around you, but stay devoted to righteousness, which means stay devoted to Jesus. To live according to his ways and his wills. To, to, to live devoted to righteousness is to let Jesus dictate what is true and what is right and what is good. 
It's to agree with him and his word on matters of ethics and morality and, and the pathway to flourishing. In a culture that sometimes calls good evil and evil good, what we're invited into is to remain devoted to Jesus, to walk in his ways, to live according to, to his ethics and his kingdom. And don't, don't miss the reality here. At some point, devotion to Jesus, commitment to righteousness is going to create friction with the world. Your loyalty to Jesus, somewhere down the line, will force you to say no to what everyone else is saying yes to. And it'll force you to say yes to what everyone else is saying no to. Your priorities will look different. You might be seen as strange or out of touch. You might get labeled. You might get canceled. You may feel like an exile and not a native. It's the whole theme of 1 Peter, that we're exiles. We're not natives. We belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so Peter says, do not fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. This is the second thing he mentions besides righteousness. Not only to be devoted to righteousness, but to regard Christ as holy. To regard something is, is to give it attention. It's, it's to concern yourself with something. It's, it's, it's to give it a due consideration. Peter combines this idea of regard with the idea of, of holiness. And if something is, is holy, it's awesome. It's worthy of devotion. It's worthy of worship. And so Peter's sort of holding this question out in front of us this morning. What in your life at this moment has your regard? What gets your time and attention? Where does your mind run in idle moments? What concerns you? What keeps you up at night? What has your affection? What to you is awesome? Whatever the answer to those questions is, is what you regard as holy. That is what you admire and dare I even say, worship. And Peter says, regard Christ that way. Make Jesus your obsession. Make him the one object of pure, unrelenting pursuit and desire. Peter is saying, if you want your life to be used to point others to Christ, then your life should be marked by a holy devotion. Because when you're committed to righteousness, when you regard Christ as holy, when he's the great pursuit and devotion of your life, what it does is it makes your life provocative, makes your life different, makes you peculiar. Have you ever noticed that most of the, of, of the interesting and compelling people in the world are those individuals who have zealously devoted their lives to something? It's the ones who have been so captured by something that it consumes them and it makes them unlike the rest. A few years ago, I found myself watching a documentary on Netflix called Free Solo. 
Maybe you've watched this documentary. It, it follows a rock climber by the name of Alex Honnold. And specifically, this rock climber's pursuit to climb El Capitan, which is one of the most advanced rock faces in the world. And he's gonna climb this rock free soloing it. A free climb is when you do it without ropes. And a solo climb is when you do it without a partner, without someone belaying you. It's just you in the mountain. It's the most dangerous way to climb. It's pure insanity. One false move and it's all over. Y'all, this documentary is riveting and completely nerve wracking. And if you have a heart condition, you don't need to watch it. <laughs> but as I watched it, it was, it was Alex Honnold himself that I was so utterly fascinated with because to listen to him and to watch him is to know that he's not normal. Something is different about this guy, about the way his brain works. He's so devoted to climbing and he's so brilliantly gifted at it that it, it provokes questions. That after watching this, this documentary, there were just so many questions I wanted to ask him. And what Peter is saying in this passage is that your devotion to Jesus can be like that. That it can be peculiar and riveting and provocative. That it can leave neighbors and coworkers and family members scratching their head and wanting to ask questions. In his book, The Imperfect Disciple, Professor Jared Wilson describes how he experienced this very thing with Pastor Ray Ortland. He writes, my friend Ray is the most Jesus guy I know. Half of him seems to exist in the spiritual ether at all times. He simultaneously radiates a warmth, a gentleness, a sweetness, and an incredible strength. He reminds me of what Jesus in person must be like. Once upon a time when Ray and I pastored churches in the same city, we started a group for pastors to gather and share stories and be encouraged by the gospel. One day there were about four of us in Ray's study and Ray suddenly said, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. And he started telling us about Jesus and it became very clear that Ray actually knows Jesus. Like he actually hangs out with him. What Peter is describing here is that. He's saying, you can live in a way where it becomes obvious to others that you actually know Jesus. That you regard him in such a way with your life that it's surprising and compelling to those around you. And so here's a question that I want us to wrestle with this morning. Has my devotion to Jesus led me to cross over the threshold of always blending in with the culture? Or is my life simply a reflection of the world around me? Has my devotion to Jesus led me to cross over the threshold of always blending in? Or is my life simply a reflection of the world around me? 
I think perhaps one of the reasons why many of us are not more regularly finding ourselves in conversations about our faith is that we aren't fully devoted to righteousness. And it isn't obvious to most people that Christ is our regard. It's the life that is fully committed to Christ that leads to opportunities to testify about him. And this really leads into the second marker that that Peter mentions here of a faithful witness. Peter calls believers not only to live lives of, of devotion, but also to be ready to give a compelling answer for the hope that is in us. That word that Peter uses in verse 15, translated in my Bible as reason, maybe your Bible says defense. It's the word apologia. Maybe your translation uh, uses, uses defense or, or, or even apologetics, but it's, it's the word from which we derive this idea of apologetics, which is this practice of making reasoned arguments for the Christian faith. And there's like an entire genre in the Christian bookstore devoted to apologetics. Maybe you've read a book like The Case for Christ or The Reason for God or Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Or maybe you've watched a YouTube video of a conversation between an atheist and a Christian debating the existence of God or the, the validity of the Christian faith. Well, Peter is referring, what Peter is referring to here is, is, is certainly, it doesn't exclude that, but that's not primarily what he's talking about. What Peter is referring to is simply everyday followers of Jesus being ready to give an explanation for their faith in Christ. Specifically, he says, for the hope that is in you. Let's remember that that Peter is writing to believers who are being ostracized for their faith. And what he's telling them is that as they endure persecution, as they endure trial, as they press on in obedience to Jesus, what's going to happen is that this is going to provoke questions from those who are watching their lives. How are you guys able to endure hardship? Don't you worry about your life? Aren't you afraid? Don't you get discouraged? Aren't you mad? That as you, as you follow Jesus in the face of suffering and trial, that that's really provocative and, and people are going to have questions. Your life is going to look different. And, and what Peter is saying here is that to those on the outside, a life hidden in Christ looks like hope. Not the wishful thinking definition of hope, but, but, but the confidence that everything is going to be okay definition of hope. Christian hope is, is certainty in God's faithfulness and certainty in God's promises. It, it's actually what, what Pastor John Piper calls faith in future grace. God will come through. He's shown himself faithful in the past, so I know he'll be faithful in the future. Hope is being able to look back at the cross and the resurrection and know that if God has saved us from our sins, then he's going to be faithful to see us through whatever circumstance we're facing in the moment. Romans 8, 28 assures us, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Hope says God is working for my good. There is purpose in this trial. I don't have to worry. And not only does this anchor us through a trial, it actually releases us from anxiety. The other side of hope is peace. 
Pastor John Piper says, if our future is not secured and satisfied by God, then we are going to be excessively anxious. And isn't that the world? The world is excessively anxious. Trapped in what Piper describes as paralyzing fear or self-managed greedy control. Everybody's trying to gain control of their lives and gain control of the situation. Everybody is anxiously toiling to have control, thinking that if they can gain control, they'll have hope, that they can find peace. And without the peace and the hope that God gives, we only end up thinking about ourselves. We only end up thinking about our future, our problems, our potential. And and what this does is it makes us so self-consumed that we're never free to love others. But what Christian hope does is it so anchors us in the promises of the gospel. It so anchors us in the assurance that God is faithful that it liberates us to actually look up and to see others. This is profound. Because what I'm trying to say is that hope doesn't just free you to confidently trust in God. It actually frees you to love. Listen to Piper one more time. He says, hope is the birthplace of Christian self-sacrificing love. When we let God take care of us, we aren't preoccupied with having to work to take care of ourselves. If If we let ourselves be taken care of by God, then we can be free to love others. Then God's glory will shine more clearly because that's how he becomes visible. When God satisfies us so deeply that we're free to love other people, then he becomes more manifest. That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying that when you let the gospel give you hope, it actually becomes more visible in your life. This kind of hope-filled living provokes all kinds of questions from those who are watching you and engaging with you and experiencing you. And so what Peter says is when the questions come, you need to be ready to give a reason. You need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. If someone asked you why you have hope, what would you tell them? Could you point them to Jesus as your anchor in the storm and as the source of your love. Peter says, be ready. Be ready to point them to Jesus for the reason of the hope that is in you. Maybe you long for that kind of hope. If you're here this morning, you're going, man, I I wish I had that hope. Friend, listen to me. It's found in Jesus. Come to me, he says. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest for your soul. You you can rest from the pursuit of acceptance because I will accept you. You can rest from your worry and your fear because I hold the future. 
You can rest from your preoccupation with keeping up with the Joneses because all things are yours in Christ. You can rest from obsessing over your retirement account and how the stock market is performing because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can rest from your anxiety about the future. You can rest from the fear of death because Christ has conquered sin in the grave. Jesus offers real rest, the kind of rest that actually allows you to live with a lightness because you know that you are truly forgiven and accepted and loved. The kind of rest that gives you deep down peace in your soul. And that rest only comes from Jesus. That hope only comes in him. Believer, have you forgotten that this is what Jesus gives you? This is what we hold out to those in search. And don't miss it. People are searching everywhere, all around us, in a thousand different ways to find the hope and the peace that comes only in Christ. To those who ask and to those who are asking without asking, We point to Jesus and we say, come and experience what I've experienced. Come and drink from a life-giving well. Come and let your soul be satisfied. Come and find a real hope. And this leads to the last marker that Peter mentions in this passage. Verse 15. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence. Ready to give a defense, yet with gentleness. So much of the rhetoric that I regularly encounter on social media from Christians is couched in this narrative of a culture war. The big bad world is coming to get us and they're trying to take over. And and we've got to push them back and we've got to fight to win the battle for our country. Now listen, there is no doubt that there are real forces in play and we do well to pay attention to them. And we don't need to be naive or cowardly in our stance toward the powers that be. But if we're not careful, we can easily lose sight of the fact that our lost neighbors are not the enemy, they're the mission. For God so loved the world. When John uses the term world, he's referring to the sinful, broken system succumbed to the fall. The dirty, the broken, the bad. God loved the world. And as Peter calls for us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have within us, he cautions us to make sure that we give it with a posture of gentleness. It's been said before that you can win an argument and lose a person. Let's not be people who, in the effort to defend our faith, lose the platform to speak it. 
We want to declare the goodness of Jesus in a way that demonstrates his goodness. We want to adorn the gospel message with beauty. And God forbid that we would feel a sense of blame for someone rejecting Christ because of the way that we postured ourselves. Verse 16 says, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. I think what Peter's saying here is that we should live our lives in such a way that it makes it hard for people to say no to Jesus. And that if they do, it's to their shame, not ours. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Friends, may we not live with a cold indifference toward our lost neighbors. It is so easy for us to go through life and to lose sight of the big picture, to lose sight of the reality of life and the afterlife. Peter's calling us to live as faithful ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus, with an observable devotion and regard for Christ, with a ready answer on our lips to speak to them and with a gracious posture that says, come all who are weary and heavy laden and Jesus will give you rest. Let's pray together.